grab a Bible and go with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Likely a very familiar text uh, to, to many of you. A text that's often called the Great Commission. Your little titles above the paragraph there might even say the Great Commission in your copy of God's Word. My plan isn't to linger here very long, but to jump around a bit in the Scriptures to help uh, set this great commission of Jesus in a larger framework. So, you know, there are, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's good, and there are times when it's appropriate to, to look and study the, the individual trees of a forest to gain a better appreciation of each one with its own unique contribution, but it's equally good to step back sometimes and see the majesty of the forest itself. And the forest I want to set before you from Matthew's gospel is that of the Son of Man and His kingdom and His mission. And what I'm hoping is that this message gives you and I a framework in which to begin thinking intentionally about our role in making disciples. You know, as a church, we'll be walking the next six weeks together through some messages on disciples making disciples. Uh, the elders have been praying for some time now and evaluating where we as elders need to grow in our leadership of you and evaluating where we as a church need to grow. And one area that we'd like to set before you for prayer and for further growth is that every member in our congregation embrace their calling to make disciples no matter how old or young you may be in the faith. Now what that looks like is going to play out in coming weeks, but we need to, uh, we want, um, we see a need as elders to nurture this in our community so, so that all disciples are making disciples. You see, in our consumeristic culture, we're used to paying other people for services they provide us. And sometimes that mindset creeps into the church in unhealthy ways. While we certainly wouldn't say this with our mouths, our actions sometimes reveal that we pay leaders in the church to make disciples while the others sit on the sidelines and watch. But the Bible sees all Christians contributing to the gospel's advance. The mission isn't limited to those serving in positions su supported financially by the church. The mission belongs to all in Christ. It's also easy, especially in a context like our own with colleges and, and seminaries in the, in the metroplex, to think that only those with higher education and professional skills are qualified to make disciples. Without even knowing it, we begin to embrace a sort of perfectionism as a church that says, on the one hand, you have to reach this level before you can talk to anybody about Jesus, or that says, on the other hand, I can't talk to others about Jesus unless I reach that level. And yet the Bible only requires one thing for you to tell others about Jesus, namely, you're born again. That's not to say the Bible doesn't have instructions about the spiritual maturity of those who lead a congregation. It does. It's only to say that it assumes that even the poorest of sinners can point others where to find the bread of life. Making disciples isn't for professionals. 
It could also be that you've wanted to make disciples. You just don't really know where to begin. Perhaps nobody has ever shown you what's involved. And so on the one hand, you're rejoicing at the theological vision from from Sunday to Sunday. You're cheering on the team here, but on the inside going, how? I mean, what's my role? Can somebody help me out here? What's it actually look like? And some of you may wonder what it looks like, even at Redeemer. Maybe you're puzzled by the various structures of care and how they work together. Maybe you're puzzled by our own leadership and wonder how exactly your own efforts fit into the bigger picture. Well, let's gather around God's Word for the next six weeks and see how He instructs us in this matter. Or perhaps your own understanding of what's included in Make Disciples is too narrow. If you've got any background in the church, you hear making disciples and you hear great commission and your mind immediately races to how many converts you've tallied up in the back of your Bible or how many baptisms your church and denomination reports every year. Your Christian subculture has reduced making disciples to evangelism and conversion and so then you often miss the opportunities right before you, say, to wash your own wife with the Word or to shepherd your own children in the faith, or to build up the saints you meet with regularly, to help the weak, and so on, you haven't really seen how those are just as much part of the Great Commission. Or maybe you hear making disciples of all nations, such a sweeping Statement, all nations in your mind immediately races to the pioneering frontier cross-cultural work that those special people called missionaries do. And you throw money at it occasionally and and you pray for their, their work to succeed, but largely apart from any efforts to reach the family next door, to speak with a co-worker about Christ or maybe even to help the poor in your community. Does making disciples extend cross-culturally to all peoples? Of course. And I hope you saw that in the email I sent out a few weeks ago. But making disciples also includes the people next door. So maybe our understanding of making disciples needs broadening to help us serve Christ more fervently where He has us now. Or maybe you understand making disciples perfectly. You even have a robust theological vision for discipleship and can even articulate the steps involved. You may not have have the college degree that others do, but hey, you've educated yourself by reading other books and listening to podcasts and going to this or that blog and going to the conferences and such. When it comes to talking about what the church should do and should look like in making disciples, you're the expert with just one problem. You're not doing it. To use the words of James, you're a great hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word. And this, James says, is self-deception. But let it not be said of us, Redeemer. Wherever you may be today, my hope is that these messages on disciples making disciples fan into flame the good work that God has already begun in you, Redeemer. I love you. I love this church. And the elders love partnering with you in the gospel's advance. We see the Lord doing good things in you already. And we give thanks for them often as recent as last Friday's Women Encouraging Women Fellowship. 
Choosing to preach on disciples, making disciples for six weeks isn't to say that none of us are making disciples or that none of us are contributing according to our gifts. It's only to say that this is an area we need to be of one, more of one mind about. That there not be just pockets of folks making disciples, but that it, that it characterize all of us, that all of us see and pursue our calling as Christians to make followers of Jesus. And where there be any damning hindrances to following the Son of Man in this, that we repent as a church and seek His help together to live as we ought to live. So with that said, let's look now at the Son of Man, His kingdom, and His mission, and then see how we fit into the picture along the way. We'll begin reading by math, uh, in, in, with Matthew 28 and uh, verse 18. And like I said, I plan to hop around quite a bit, so don't feel like you have to race to this or that text I might mention. You might just choose to listen now and pick up the manuscript online later if you want the references. But verse 18 says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven... And on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Father in heaven, I ask that you would use these words to instruct us that you would help us see the Son of Man's kingdom and the Son of Man's mission and the Son of Man himself. And that by seeing him, we might be all the more captured by his, captivated by his love and, and ready to do his work. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Matthew's gospel, as we just read, it ends on a note of glorious triumph. Jesus was crucified for sinners and, and laid in the grave for three days. And suddenly angels descend from heaven, shaking the earth. The stone rolls back to reveal the life bursting forth from inside. And Jesus now stands on a mountain with his disciples, possessing all authority in heaven and on earth. The victorious king, this Jesus he has conquered his enemies, sin and death, and, and now gives command for his kingdom citizens to spread the word of his victory far and wide. That's how Matthew's gospel ends. It, it ends on this note of triumph. But not many of us are likely to say that Matthew's gospel also begins on a note of triumph. After all, we know how thrilling genealogies can be. So-and-so fathered so-and-so, and who fathered so-and-so, who fathered so-and-so, who married so-and-so, and then fathered so-and-so, and so forth. Forty-two generations worth at the outset of Matthew's gospel. The first three paragraphs of Matthew's gospel can leave us scratching our heads and yawning, unless we understand why they exist. 
The gospel of Jesus doesn't begin in a vacuum. Rather, Matthew picks up his pen where the Old Testament prophets set theirs down. God's people had returned from their Babylonian exile, but the promises of God's kingdom seemed to have stalled out. Sin still ruled the day. Foreign oppressors still scoffed the God of Israel. And since David's house was pretty much lying in shambles, any hope for another Davidic king to take the throne seemed quite doubtful. But then in steps Matthew, giving us a bit of history and tying in Jesus' own life with the promises God gave to Abraham and then to David to bring forth a royal offspring, a Messiah who would save his people, a child destined to bring God's final rule of peace on earth and thus blessing all the nations. In fact, it's this one named Jesus at the end of Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1 who will finally put an end to this wretched exile. But the way he he ends the exile isn't by quieting foreign oppressors. Far more important than that, Jesus will save his people from their sins. Jesus will give us God. He will be God with us. And so even right from the beginning, Matthew is screaming at us the victory that comes through this Jesus born of a virgin. It's a perfect intro into the king child. He is the child that all of history has waited for. He is the child on whom all God's promises to Israel stand. He is the one who has come to lead us out of exile truly by taking away our sins and giving us the very presence of God in Emmanuel. This one who also at the end of his gospel says, I will be with you always to the end of the age. God with us in chapter 1, I will be with you in chapter 28. And so whether you're at the beginning or the end of Matthew's gospel, we see that this gospel is about a triumphant king. He will save his people from their sins and he will establish his kingdom with universal authority so that God is truly with us. And yet there are several more things to note about this king in between chapters 1 and 28. And many of them stem from what we learn when we find on Jesus' lips the very kingly title Son of Man. Thirty times in this gospel alone, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. It's a self-designation that he uses more than any other. And we learn some things about him and his kingdom and the mission he's on when we make observations in these various places. So first off, we learn that the Son of Man is supremely powerful and building his kingdom. The Son of Man is supremely powerful and building His forever kingdom. Some of you will know the specific title, Son of Man, has its roots in the Old Testament. Uh, Back to the prophet Daniel. The children at Redeemer love the prophet Daniel. Some of our dig servants can vouch that if you were to ask our children about the prophet Daniel, they'd likely have something to say about lions. Daniel gets thrown to the lions for praying to God instead of to that human king, Darius. But then to everybody's surprise, none of the lions even touched Daniel that night. And as the story goes on, it's clear that it wasn't because the lions weren't hungry. No, it was because Daniel's God saved him. So Darius comes to him the next morning, pulls Daniel out from the den, and then makes this proclamation. 
Daniel's God is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. But then Daniel Daniel suddenly shifts from real lions surrounding God's prophet to some terrible beasts threatening God's people. The first was like a lion that had eagle's wings. The second looked like a bear devouring flesh. The third was like a four-headed leopard. And the fourth was, worst of all, hardly describable with any creature on earth. It had iron teeth and ten powerful horns. These dreadful mascot-like beasts, we're told, represent various kingdoms that are warring against God's people. Each evil kingdom simply defeating and replacing the one before it, but the last being by far the worst in terms of oppressing the faithful followers of Yahweh. Until a different king takes his throne. In the same way God delivered Daniel from the lions, God would deliver his people from these beasts, these beastly kingdoms. Daniel spends some time pulling back the curtain, so to speak, in Daniel 7 to show us that what these evil kingdoms are really made of. Terrible as they may be, they have nothing against this one called the Son of Man. Behold, Daniel says, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, unlike the other kingdoms, which shall not pass away, unlike the other kingdoms, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed, unlike the other kingdoms. Returning now to Matthew's gospel, there's a reason the people discern that Jesus teaches with such authority, unlike their scribes and Pharisees. There's a reason the wind and seas obey Jesus when he says, hush. There's a reason the lame walk and the blind see and the sick become well and lepers become clean and the dead rise simply at Jesus's touch. There's a reason the demons and unclean spirits tremble at his voice and beg him not to punish them yet. He's the most powerful king in the universe. And that should help us hear Jesus' words in the Great Commission afresh. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Why make disciples? Well, because the Son of Man has begun to reign. He has taken His throne, as Paul says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And He is right now building His kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be defeated, a kingdom that will one day swallow the earth. 
He tells Peter in chapter 16 of Matthew's gospel, on this rock, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The picture is that of the Son of Man storming the gates of hell and building his church and plucking people from death and bringing them into life and asking Peter, come on, join me in this mission. He's supremely powerful and building his forever kingdom. And get this church, this one called the Son of Man who comes to the Ancient of Days with all boldness and in Revelation steps up to that same Ancient of Days and takes the scroll from his hand. This Son of Man is with you, is with you to the end of the age. He is not just with anybody. He is with his church alone because of grace. He is with you in the mission. If he can handle the nations, he can handle our growth in making disciples. He can, if, he's, if he can subdue the nations with his authority, he can help us take word, the word to others. He can tear down the strongholds in this city, and he can tear down the strongholds in our own lives. We also learn that this Son of Man is compassionate towards sinners in his mission. He is compassionate towards sinners in this mission. This is one of the things I love about God throughout the Bible. The Bible moves back and forth often between these pictures of Him as majestic King and compassionate Savior. We see this in Jesus as well. For example, in Matthew 9, not too long after Jesus again calls Himself the Son of Man, not too long after He says to the paralytic, get up and walk so that you all see that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or a bit later in the gospel, chapter 15, before he feeds the 4,000, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry. We get these notes of Jesus' compassion towards sinners. This compassion Jesus has towards sinners even leads him to, to recline at, at the dinner table with many tax collectors and sinners, you know, like, like you rejoicing that you get to treat the IRS to lunch tomorrow on your tab, at your house. Like you get to welcome the prostitute into your home. Have them eat dinner with your children as you speak the truth, right? His compassion drove him to, to reach out to the broken, to, to invite the shady ones to follow him, to touch the woman bleeding and say, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And it's so taboo to the religious leaders that they tease Jesus about it they make fun of him for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But you see, it's all part of his mission as the Son of Man. He came not to call the righteous, that is, those who think they're okay. He came to call only one kind of people, and that's sinners. 
In Luke's gospel, you read it earlier, he says it this way, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the mission the most powerful man in the universe is on. And I want to be right there with him. Why do we make disciples? Because the Son of Man is compassionate towards sinners. We go to sinners because the Son of Man came to us, sinners. He reached out to us with compassion. We do the same no matter the background. Not to make disciples is to cease being amazed that the Son of Man has found us. The Son of Man is also our servant Redeemer, giving His life in place of many. He is our servant Redeemer, giving His life in place of many. You see, as you read along in Matthew's Gospel and get glimpses of the Son of Man's power and glimpses of the Son of Man's compassion towards sinners, you steadily begin to see what those two things lead Him to do for sinners. His power, coupled with compassion, leads Him to serve sinners to the point of death in their place. One place this becomes really clear is in chapter 20 of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus prophesies uh, once, about, uh, once again about His death, and he, he says to His disciples, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And then, by the time you get to verse 28 in chapter 20, he, he says this. Uh, he says what that death in Jerusalem will be for us, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, what does that mean, ransom for many? It means that Jesus gives His life as a payment to release us from our condemnation. We deserved the, the penalty of eternal wrath because of sin. The penalty of eternal wrath that we deserved, Jesus is saying He paid it by dying in our place. He becomes our substitute so that what should have happened to us happens to Him instead. Which provides yet another impetus for us to make disciples as we look at the Son of Man's mission. The Son of Man didn't come because He needed anything. He didn't need us to serve Him. He wasn't lacking anything. He already possessed everything. He came because people needed rescue. We needed redemption from our sin and from the wrath of God, and so He chose to serve us by giving up His life as a substitute in accordance with His Father's will. If He has given His life as a ransom for many, then how could we not tell the many about it again and again and again? His mission is to win the many. 
the people he purchased with his life. We even see them standing before the throne of God on the last day in Revelation 5, ransomed for God from, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. If that's the Son of Man's mission, to give his life here so that they might worship him there, then what ought our lives be about till then? He told his disciples what they should be about. In Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Follow me. Follow me where? Follow him on the Calvary Road. The same road he walked in laying down his life that others might enjoy worshiping him forever. Our lives must be about dying to help the many see the Son of Man's ransom and to help the many who have seen his ransom live their lives by what that ransom implies. So, for example, in the context of chapter 20, that looks like living an upside-down kind of life. Whoever would be great among you, Jesus says, must be your servant. That's not the way the world thinks. You want to be great, you step on people to get there. Jesus flips the world upside down. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Why? Well, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, he says. We live to serve others with Christ and like Christ because we've been ransomed by Christ. That's true in the way we go to the world, and it's true in the way we serve one another. We hold out his ransom so that people fall in love with him and then start living like him. We want these people to love him now and to follow him now because there's coming a day when the Son of Man will finish his mission. The Son of Man not only gave His life as a ransom, He rose three days later, as we saw in chapter 28. He rose and then He ascended to heaven till at the appointed time the Son of Man will finish His mission. The Son of Man will finish building His kingdom. His present reign in heaven will become His reign on earth when He splits the skies and His feet touch down on the Mount of Olives. And we want people loving Him now so that they will not be dreading Him forever. The Son of Man is also a returning King who will finish building His kingdom. A returning King who will finish building His kingdom. Matthew's Gospel tells us this. Matthew 16. After Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, he says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 
Matthew 24, verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Chapter 25, verses 31 and 32. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. And they will then be judged by whether they served Jesus with their lives or not, by whether they loved others as Jesus loved or not. And the goats will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life, the end of chapter 25 tells us. Why do we make disciples? Because the Son of Man promises to complete His mission Part of the completion of that mission threatens grave judgment for those who choose not to follow Him. And this is where our compassion comes in. We don't want people going there. So we tell them. We go to them. We train them. We equip them. But another part of the completion of that mission promises great reward for those who do follow Him. To them, in another place in Matthew's Gospel, it says, the Son of Man will say, enter into the joy of your Master. And that's ultimately what we want. We want people enjoying the great reward that is found in Jesus When we make disciples, we want them enjoying the reward of Christ. We want them experiencing His presence now in Emmanuel so that they will get Emmanuel for all eternity. So that they will, as we'll sing in a few minutes, dance with the Son of Man on the streets that are golden. That's what we want when we make disciples. That's why we make disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus, the Son of Man. Therefore, go and make disciples, Redeemer. These are just a few broad observations about the Son of Man, His kingdom, and His mission. And I hope you're beginning to see a larger framework for the Great Commission. Why make disciples? So that all people see the Son of Man's rule on earth while He is reigning in heaven. There's coming a day when He will return to the earth and will rule from the earth, but for now, He reigns in heaven. People see the Son of Man's glory when when other people follow Him and teach others to do the same on earth. And so He mentions some things for us that will flesh out in the coming weeks in Matthew 28, going and baptizing and teaching. Going and baptizing and teaching. 
All these things, they, in, in this much larger framework, they're not just things we do to sort of maintain the institution. They are things we do that are pointing others to the Son of Man's reign and His victory. Going or evangelism is essentially proclaiming the king's reign, his coming kingdom, and how you enter it through faith and repentance. Baptism is is linked to the local church, his kingdom on earth, and, and, and is the way people publicly express their allegiance to the king in a community gathering. It's a kind of baptism is this kind of passport into the kingdom, if you want to call it that. It's how you identify with his rule and his people teaching people then to obey all that He commanded is how we show people to follow and obey the King's orders, what He says goes for His community, His citizens on earth. We don't make disciples merely to keep an institution running. We make disciples to help people see the Son of Man in all of His glory. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been summoned by the King of Kings to give your life to making followers of Him. You were created and then saved to join the Son of Man as He extends His rule among all peoples through the proclamation of the gospel. You've been called to reap the fruits of His victory over sin and death in people's lives. How does that happen? It happens by making disciples, making followers of Jesus. Certainly, Jesus is the only sovereign, extending His rule from sea to sea. Jesus doesn't need our help in making disciples of all nations. And none of this disciple-making will even happen apart from His sovereign grace. That's true. But the amazing thing is that He's given us the great privilege of spreading His fame and the enjoyment of His reign, reign through making disciples. Some of you may be saying, but I still want to know what this looks like, practically speaking. You didn't spend much time on how to make disciples this morning. And I have two things to say in response. we got five more weeks to go on this topic. It's one. And I'm hoping to get to some of these practical outworkings of this in terms of evangelism, in terms of the local church, and our partnership in the gospel, in terms of teaching, what does teaching even look like for each of us? What does cross-bearing look like? And then lastly, we're going to talk about prayer. But more importantly, I didn't spend much time this week on how to make disciples because I think we're so forgetful of why we make disciples. Discipleship doesn't begin by telling you what to do, but by helping you fall in love with the Son of Man. I can get up here and tell you what to do. And it will be a few weeks and you'll stop doing it. If I don't give you Jesus, your doing won't last very long. And even worse, 
hellishly worse. You'll be doing it without Jesus. As others have put it, the longer you look at Jesus, the more you will want to serve Him. And that's all I'm trying to do with this first message on, making, on disciples making disciples. Just get you to look at Jesus. Just get you to see His glory, to see His kingdom breaking into the present, to see His kingdom coming in the future, to give you a glimpse of how we're joining Him now in His present reign, making disciples, to see His compassionate mission to save sinners before He returns in glory and power. That's all I'm trying to do with this first message. And we'll be coming back to this message as we talk about the how in weeks to come. But, to the end, that uh, Son of Man has redeemed us and is calling us to join Him in this and will one day return for us, let's join together now in a song of celebration and hope of this Son of Man's return for us.